So, welcome to Plodcast, episode 63. Uh, this is uh, it's a good time. Thanks for joining us in it. So, I, I want to talk a little bit uh, today about social justice and, and the relationship of social uh, justice to justification and the relationship of that to uh, what might be called a worldview narrative. So, um, a lot of Christians know that they don't like, you know, they they react away or they recoil from um, someone describing themselves as a social justice warrior. Uh, when they think of social justice, they think of campus activists being snowflakes and so on. But if someone stopped and said, what, stopped them and said, but what problem do you have with, I mean, justice is good, right? You're, you're for justice. So what could be wrong with social justice? Well, obviously, you could um, define social justice in a careful enough way that nothing was wrong with it. You could say justice is that which God describes um, as just in the Bible. And, uh, and if it's a corporate sense of justice applied to a whole society, well, then that would be social justice. Um, but unfortunately, we have to take terms the way they are used in common, common parlance, and it's right that we react away, react away from the phrase social justice. We should react to it the same way we, we would react to a phrase like bone cancer. Uh, social justice is simply the sharp end of the spear advancing the entire socialist, Marxist, um, egalitarian agenda. Social justice is not, um, social justice is very different from biblical justice. And here's why. In order to have, you, you, it's not possible to have a definition of justice unless, this is a fallen world, right? And because it's a fallen world, there are there are things that are wrong with it. There are things that are dislocated. There are things that are out of kilter, and that mean and and that out of that out of kilterness is and includes the people. There are people who are wearing white hats, and there are people who are wearing black hats. There are good guys, and there are bad guys. Another way of saying this is that there are people who are justified, and there are people who are not justified. And if you're not justified, then you're going to be condemned no matter what you do or say. And if you are justified, then you're not going to be condemned no matter what you do or say. And the uh, category of justification, and I'm talking about justification in the biblical sense of imputed righteousness, not, com not completely or entirely, but the 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 biblical category of imputed righteousness is the only true form of justification. But, it's, but because we have a world where there are good guys and bad guys, every alternative system of value other than the biblical system has to also have a concept of justification. Every, um, every worldview has to have a justified class. And behind that justi justified class, they have to have a narrative that justifies that class being the justified. So, 
for example, um, uh, you've got the narrative. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of bondage, out of the house of Egypt. Um, and that results at the end of the day in commands that define justice. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, etc. Um, the secular narrative is, is this. The secular narrative is that Europe was racked by religious wars, constant, interminable religious wars, till finally someone had the bright idea of let's have, let's have religious neutrality at the state level. So the secular state arose and delivered us all from the land of Egypt. And they now dictate certain things that are, they dictate their own set of thou shalt nots. Um, currently, thou shalt not be a misogynist. Thou shalt not be a racist. Now, how does the concept of justification uh, enter, uh, enter into this? Well, so f for example, you could have an icon of the civil rights uh, movement, someone like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. He is justified. He says he, get, he delivers an, uh, a, a profoundly moving statement that he looks forward. He has a dream when his children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, what Christians do, um, uh, weak Christians, Christians who don't understand what's going on, what they tend to do is they go to that statement and, and pick it up, you know, uh, you know, move it around in their hands a little bit, evaluating it, and they they ask themselves, could this statement fit in into our narrative? Could this statement fit into a biblical system? And the answer is, of course, yes, it can. Not judging uh, people by the con color of their skin, but rather by the content of their character, is a biblical. Uh, uh, that's a biblical sentiment. But. Martin Luther King was delivering that sentiment from another place entirely, and we are not allowed to judge him by the content of his character. The, you know, he was committing adultery the night before he was shot, um, and, uh, and you can say he was a brave man, he was a great man, he was an important man, but you cannot say that he was a good man. He was a liar and a cheater and... Uh, betraying his wife, etc. The thing, I'm, I'm not uh, bringing this up in order to throw mud at Martin Luther King. What I'm doing is I'm bringing it up to show how impossible it is to throw mud at Martin Luther King Jr. I'm, so I'm not saying he was an adulterer, look at, this, look at this mud that I'm throwing. I'm saying this man manifestly did not live up to manifestly did not live up to the standard that he professed, uh, the standard that he professed that we should be living up to. He did not live up to it. And if you say so, you're a racist. You're, you're, not, you're not permitted to bring, uh, you know, bring a charge against the secular state's elect. It is the secular state who justifies. Um, so, the thing that we have to understand is that justification is an inescapable concept. Justification is necessary. There's going to be, if 
And that's because you're going to need referees. You're going to need someone who is authorized to say what social justice is. Someone has got to be the person who will um, point to the goal, who will tell us when we're getting closing in on it, who will tell us when we've attained it. And that person um, has to be justified in order to be able to make that call. So a narrative, there's a social narrative that says, you know, this is who we are, this is where we came from, this is the, our situation, and here are the Lord's anointed. I'm putting Lord's in quotation marks. Here, here are the anointed one. Here, this, this is our cadre of priests. These are our justified ones. And then they set before you the standards of social justice. For Christians, the narrative is God created the heavens and the earth 6,000 years ago. He's given us his word. He delivered his people from Egypt, and he delivered uh, all of us from the Egypt of sin. And he has declared us righteous in Jesus Christ and then told us to live in a particular way. You can't, you can't just tag biblical justice norms on the tail end of a secular narrative. If you do, you are in the process of being co-opted. So the book I want to um, commend to you or the book I want to review uh, in this uh, episode of podcast, episode 63, is uh, Selected Literary Essays by C.S. Lewis. This is one of the lesser read of Lewis's uh, books, but I, I really want to commend it to you. Out of all of Lewis's academic writing, uh, books like The Allegory of Love or The Discarded Image or um, uh, English Literature in the 16th uh, Century or this one, I would say that this book is the most accessible out of all of his, out of all of his academic writing. Um, and it's a collection of literary essays from, from all over. Uh, because it's not one sustained volume with a, uh, like uh, the discarded images or allegory of love, um, you can take it, you know, you can, you can cut it up in little pieces and you can just read one of the essays and digest it and then read another one on a different topic and digest it. So they, they all have um, um, certain, you know, Lewis wrote them all and, and his, his outlook on literary matters is, uh, comes out in common ways throughout them, but he, throughout all of these essays. But he is, um, he is dealing with um, a wide variety of topics and those topics are of uh, are of general interest. So just for a uh, a few uh, just for a few examples, he has a uh, in this book he has an essay on uh, Jane Austen. He analyzes uh, uh, Jane Austen's uh, uh, books and gives an overview of the books and has a very sh a very shrewd uh, discussion of of how. Um, in most of Austen's books, there's a turning point in the protagonist's outlook uh, about herself, uh, sort of uh, uh, the point where the, the protagonist becomes self-aware of how foolish they've been or how wrong-headed they've been, whether it's Elizabeth uh, in Pride and Prejudice or Marianne in Sense and Sensibility. Uh, they, they have this 
realization. They have this conversion moment. They have this uh, uh, moment where they come face to face with themselves in a mirror. And Lewis uh, uh, directly ties it in with Austin's um, uh, Christianity. She was a Christian writer, and and her Christianity profoundly affected how she wrote. So there's an essay on, on Lewis's treatment of Austin. He has a, a very interesting um, uh, essay there on four-letter words, on, on the place of four-letter words in literature. And his thesis is uh, very interesting. He, he, he's vastly learned, and he goes through, um, he goes through the, the use of four-letter words in literature in history, and he basically comes to the conclusion. This is this was in the context of um, the trial uh, uh, surrounding Lady Chatterley's lover uh, by uh, D. H. Lawrence and the obscenity of um, that was expressed in that book. And Lewis's conclusion here is that there have been plenty of ribald or bawdy or um, vulgar expressions of. Um, sentiment uh, over the centuries in literature. But the, our modern era is the first to, to have it taken seriously. Uh, in other words, it's, it's ribald the way Chaucer is. So you've, got, you've always had dirty jokes, basically. You've, um, you've, you've always had dirty jokes. And Lewis is saying, yeah, the comedic effect, the dirty joke, that sort of thing is never been taken that seriously. And um, and what and basically leave it to the 20th century to come up with the dirty joke that's not funny, and uh, it's a very pointed, very good essay. He has another essay in this book on the vision of John Bunyan, uh, where uh, Lewis's appreciation for John Bunyan's uh, genius, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, is on full display. Um, Lewis does a, a fantastic job. With that, he has a he has a great essay on uh, high brows and low brows, uh, where he he uh, tackles a very curious problem that you can uh, you you could identify this problem next time you're in a big bookstore, is you can walk up and down in bar, if you're in Barnes and Noble, you can walk up and down uh, an aisle where all the fiction is, and they've you've got the romances and the fantasy science fiction and all the different sections. And then two rows over, you walk down that aisle, and the heading is literature. There's literature, and then there's fiction. There's literature, and then there's books. Um, fictional books that are literature and fictional books that are not literature. And Lewis said, the thing that's curious about this is that you will find books um, in the— uh, I'm, this is my illustration. Lewis wasn't talking about Barnes & Noble— um, but he said you will find books in the literature section that are classed as literature that are badly done. They're bad books. And you will find pop literature that are well-executed, fascinating, uh, high craftsmanship. So you will have good books that are, you know, good bad books and bad good books, <laughs> in other words. And Lewis is tackling the problem that that creates. Why do we have good bad books and bad good books? Why, why is that even a possibility? And Lewis is arguing uh, for the overthrow of the highbrow, lowbrow distinction. He wants to eradicate popular art 
from serious art. He wants to say there's just art. There's, you know, there's dance, there's, there's poetry, there's music, there's, and we should evaluate according to genre and according, according to craft, craft competence within that genre. Anyway, uh, if you, uh, I'm not even sure if this book, Selected Literary Essays, is still in print. I think it, I, yes, I think it is. I think Harper Collins has all uh, his uh, uh, books in print. But also, um, I, I read this years ago uh, in hard, uh, hard copy and just recently reread it on, um, uh, on my Logos Bible software app. There's a C.S. Lewis uh, collection there, C.S. Lewis bundle that you can get, and selected literary essays as part of that. So, go read, do it. So, podcast episode sixty-three. We are continuing uh, uh, through our study of sin in the New Testament and the Greek words for various sins. Uh, this is our hamartiology. Uh, segment. So not only is the verb for sinning common in 1 John, which we considered in the previous uh, podcast, but so is the noun. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin, hamartia, uh, 1-7. If we say that we have no need of this cleansing, the truth is not in us, and the sin we deny, uh, the sin that we deny that we have is in fact in us. So that's 1-8. So say that again. If we say that we have no need of this cleansing, the truth is not in us, and the sin we deny we have is, in fact, in us. 1.8. But if we confess our sins, 1.9, acknowledging that God is true when he labels our sin as sin, God is gracious to forgive us for those same sins. 1.9 again. The reason John is writing to these people at all is because their sins are forgiven. That's in 2.12, just a few verses down. Now, Christ averted the wrath of God, a wrath that was resting upon this world because of sin in 2.2. This averting of wrath, this propitiation for our sins, as John says, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world, is the demonstration of God's nature as love, which we're told about in 4.10. There's no tension between propitiation and love. The former is the display case of the latter. So when propitiation occurs, we see two things simultaneously. We see the love of God and we see the hatred of God. When uh, propitiation is the outpouring of wrath on a pure sacrifice. And when we look at the cross, Christians are accustomed to look at the cross and, and to think of it in terms of the love of God, and which, which is quite true. It is a, a, the ultimate expression of the love of God, the love of God for sinners. But it is simultaneously the ultimate expression of the hatred of God for sin. God hated sin, hamartia, so much that he, when that sin was identified with his son, he poured out his wrath on his son destroying his son and the sin together. So God hates sin so much that when it was identified with his son, he poured out his wrath on his son. So what is sin anyway? Whoever commits sin is someone who has transgressed a boundary of the law in 3.4. 
And we know that this is so because sin is the transgression of the law. Sin, and that's in 3.4. Sin is lawlessness. Jesus himself had no sin, 3.5, which is why he was in a position to take our sins away, 3.5. If Jesus was a sinner, then he would have to he'd be in the dock with regard to his own sin. He, he would have his own sins to answer for. But because he didn't have any of his own sins to answer for, he was unencumbered and could deal with our sins. He could be a propitiation for our sins. The one who commits sin is of the devil, 3.8, and is exhibiting a clear family resemblance to his father. The one who is born of God does not have this family resemblance any longer, 3.9. So when you come to God, the family resemblance, the, the hamartia res resemblance is taken away. If we see a brother sin, a sin that's not unto death, we should pray for him, that's in 5.16. And, and if it is unto death, we should not pray, 5.16. All unrighteousness is sin, 5.17. But some sins, however unrighteous, do not result in death, 5.17. Some people sin and it doesn't take them to the point of death. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.